0: Well, good morning. It is an exciting day for us here in the Bay Area as I'm excited to announce our first evening service tonight at 5.30. Just kidding. (laughs) Go Niners. I know that scared a lot of you. Well, speaking of the Super Bowl or sports or even our country, they say these days that we live in a divided country. The politics specifically of our nation have pulled us further apart, or so they say. Same nation, but different views, diverse opinions, sometimes even polar opposites, but same nation. Though perhaps not as drastic, the same thing can happen in the local church. I say not as drastic because the core beliefs are generally the same, But in some ways, perhaps it is more drastic than politics because, well, it's the church. God's people. How can there be disunity? How can there be division? Grace, love, peace, and all that, right? In fact, if I were to ask for a show of hands, we are a church that is only eight years old. And so many, if not most of you, came from another church either eight years ago or more recently. If I were to ask you, ask for a show of hands of how many of you have come from churches where there was division, where there was disunity, where there were factions, where there was perhaps even a church split, I think the number of hands that would go up would probably bring most of us to tears. It is commonplace today, especially here in America. And unfortunately, as it is in politics, so it is in many churches and so it was in the church of Corinth. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. We have finished with Paul's greeting to the Corinthians, and now he gets into the first issue that he wants to address with the Corinthian church, and that is there is division in that local church. Specifically, as we've just read, there are groups or factions within the church that are claiming some sort of allegiance to various individuals that are still or were still alive at that time. Paul shuts them down and then talks about his time with them and how he's glad he didn't give anyone more reason to claim to be a part of the party of Paul, as it were. Now, the situation is unique to that time with the various apostles and early church leaders still alive. But we can learn much about unity and division within the local church. And though we may not be able to relate to the specifics of the disunity in ancient Corinth, we can learn both from their sin as well as Paul's rebuke. Ultimately, whatever form division takes, the underlying sins... Are the same. And aside from the sin, there is another commonality that modern day division in the church has with what happened in Corinth. And that is this division within the church is extremely dangerous. And though you may think that there is no division here in our church, the issue is not always what's said or exhibited publicly. It's what's whispered outside of church among friends, behind closed doors. It's what's thought and harbored in your heart. It is the bitterness, the unforgiveness, the gossip. These are all potential seeds that can blossom into a sinful and dangerous poison known as division. And this morning and next week, we will be looking from this passage at five components of division in the church. We're only going to look at the first one this morning, and we'll look at the remaining next Sunday. But the first point is from verse 10, which is really the meat of the lesson, whereas the remaining verses 11 through 17 are more descriptive of Paul's experience and, and what is specifically happening there in Corinth. And so I want to spend our entire time this morning looking at verse 10 and the first component of division in the church, which is the appeal, the appeal let me read for you again, verse ten of First Corinthians one. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, though we're only going to cover our first point, the verse is so rich that I want to break it down to to four subpoints. And so this morning we're looking at the appeal, but I want to give you four aspects of the appeal. And the first, letter A, if you will, the brotherhood of the appeal. He begins by saying, now I exhort you, brethren. Once again, we see the love and the God-centered perspective of Paul, how he has or what he has for these Christians. It might be helpful to remember that they're not behaving in a manner worthy of the Christian calling. In fact, some of the ungodliness is specifically directed Personally, at Paul. And yet, he is gentle. He is loving towards them. He is gracious. And we see this not only in his calling them brethren, my brothers and sisters, my family, but also in the word exhort. I exhort you. Or appeal if you have the ESV or NIV. It literally means in the Greek to entreat, to encourage. The old English word that we probably don't use much today would be beseech. Which is actually in the King James. And the way it's used here gives the sense not of a demand, not of a, uh, of something rude, forceful, yes, but polite. It, it means to, to beseech, to exhort means to come alongside someone. It's like putting your arm around someone, say, Hey, listen, it shows brotherly love. It, it shows the gentleness of Paul despite the attacks from these people that he is addressing. And then, of course, he goes on to refer to them as brethren. He doesn't call them enemies. He doesn't call them sinners. Or perhaps it would have been easier just to not refer to them as anything. But he calls them brethren, family, my brothers, my sisters. Even in the midst of division or perhaps because of it, Paul emphasizes that they are family despite being a split community. And this goes back to all that we've seen thus far in 1 Corinthians regarding the grace that they have received, that they all share, and part of which is the position that they all have in Christ. They are all children of God and spiritual siblings of one another. And this is no different than how you might try to amend strained relationships in your physical family. If there is discord among siblings or between a parent and a child, the first thing you say usually or the first thing you think is, look, we're family. Don't do this. Hey, you're siblings. You shouldn't be treating each other this way. And this is especially true when there's disunity within the family. And Paul's taking the same approach. Listen, we're family. This shouldn't be happening. So in this simple address, Paul shows us not only how to approach division, but also why division is so wrong within the church. It's because we are family. After all, as the saying goes, blood is thicker than water. But you know what's thicker than blood? the bond that we have in the blood of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the second aspect of the appeal, the basis of the appeal. By the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ. When you see that phrase, the name of Jesus, or the name of Jesus Christ, you know that it's referring to all that Christ is. That was just a way of saying a representative of everything that that person who has that name entails. It's the name of someone, represents the totality of that person. So in this case, he is appealing to them, exhorting them on both the character and the will of Jesus Christ. And Paul says that he exhorts his brethren by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, by the authority and because of the fellowship in Christ. Those are the basis of everything that he's about to say in addressing the division in their church. See, it's not his opinion. It's not just his emotions. It's based on Jesus Christ and his will and character. In fact, if it were completely up to Paul, based on his circumstances and how he felt, what was most convenient for him, he could easily just write them off. There's plenty of other churches why spend all this time having a scribe dictate this letter and then have someone walk it over to this church but there's a greater good there's a greater basis at work here which is the glory of god and so in though or excuse me in through and because of Jesus Christ he exhorts them And generally speaking, we know that it's in line with Christ's character and in His will that His body, the church, be unified, obviously. The the picture goes without saying. You, you, You wouldn't want your physical body to be torn apart. But what does that mean exactly? The question is very important to know the answer to in this day and age when unity in Christianity is pursued at all costs, even compromising doctrine. Is that what Paul is saying? Is that what Paul wants? That if we can all just get along and stop fighting, then we will exhibit the love of Christ? You know that's not the case. So let's move on to our third point for this morning, the basics of the appeal. The basics of the appeal. He says that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Now we come to the issue at hand, the division. He starts with the general before moving to the specific, and the general principles are these two. He says, I want you to agree, and I want there to be no divisions. The word agree literally means to speak the same thing. And in that day... The word had heavy political overtones of disputing political factions coming to a unified peace in agreement of one political issue or one cause. We actually also have evidence of this word back then being used on the inscription of a grave to indicate the harmonious life between a husband and wife that were in that grave. In this context, the word agree speaks of unity within the local church, specifically the church at Corinth, but also for all local churches. There's New Testament teaching that does call for unity within the universal church, Ephesians, for example, but here Paul is talking about a specific local church. The implication for us then is that there is a call in Scripture for unity within Grace Church of the Bay Area. And this kind of agreement is in the name of Christ. It involves the things of Christ. So we must have agreement on who He is, the Son of God, the Lord, the Savior. His will we have to have agreement on as revealed in His Word and so forth. Spiritual matters, doctrinal matters, things of Christ. And Paul goes on to say that there should be no divisions within the church. He's not being repetitive when he says agree and no divisions. He's actually addressing a separate but related issue. See, divisions was a word used to speak of the breaking or destruction of unity through force. It was also used of a tear in a piece of clothing. Right? You know that when your clothing tears, it doesn't just happen. Something forces it to tear. It's a rip. Also, it was used of political factions fighting for power. Metaphorically, this would refer to people who have a difference opinion or dissension. In fact, an interesting use of this very word in the Greek is found in the Gospel of John in chapter 7, 9, and 10, where you see the crowds were divided, same word, And they were divided after these various crowds heard the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so they were arguing, they were fighting about the significance of Jesus' teaching as well as who he was. Of course, the Pharisees were arguing that he wasn't who he claimed to be. And so even among the crowds, there was division. And so this kind of gives you an idea of how that word has been used in the Scriptures. If it helps at all, division, the Greek word is where we get the English word schism. So what Paul is confronting is the Corinthians' divided opinion on important matters. Understand that this isn't about having differing opinions on non-essential matters. We don't have to all agree on the same things regarding to food preferences or schools or things like that. These were the kinds of important doctrinal things that were hurting the church. In other words, you're not going to cause sinful division in the church because you can't agree on where to eat after service or what your favorite color is. But you are going to cause division if you disagree on doctrine or if you, if you create factions or groups that claim allegiance to various church leaders, which is exactly the situation going on in Corinth. In fact, though not as blatant as what was happening in Corinth, This is often what happens in church splits today as various groups take sides with a particular pastor or elder or church leader and then they split. And so Paul is warning against division in issues that are foundation, foundational rather, to the biblical functioning of the local church. And it's not that you aren't to have an opinion on things. It's not that you can't speak up if you think there's there's error being taught or that something can be done better for our church service. It's not that you can't walk away from a service or a sermon understanding that I, as your pastor, am indeed imperfect and a sinner. You should. But I think we all know the difference between just having a difference of opinion, recognizing and accepting something, Versus making that something an issue and causing problems because of that issue. I want to give you some indicators that where an opinion may be something that's leading to division within the church. This is not a complete list, but some things just to look out for in your heart. The first is very general and it's anger. It's anger. If there's an issue, if something happened and you are angry about it, then that's a problem. Even if you initially started by wanting to help, if it grows into anger, then you are sinning because all human anger is sin. You know that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus compares anger to murder. An actual murder or not, nothing good comes out of human anger. It causes alienation and animosity and even the most sinful of relationships. So how much more in the church? You may be right. But if you being right includes anger, you need to repent of that anger first. Otherwise, the way you approach it and the way you deal with it is going to cause problems because you're approaching it through sin. You need to get the log out of your own eye. In Matthew 7, where Jesus speaks of that, he doesn't just say, stop trying to deal with the speck in someone else's eye, deal with the log in your own eye, and stops. No, he says, deal with the log in your own eye first, and then you can deal righteously with the speck in someone else's eye. Someone else's eye. And so if you are mad about something, You need to repent of that anger, get the log out of your own eye, and then you can approach and deal with it unemotionally, rationally. And I believe more often than not, when you deal with your anger, the issue is actually going to go away. A second way that you may be tending towards division or dealing with an issue wrongly is by jumping to conclusions or making assumptions. We tend to assume the worst, don't we? Especially when there's an issue that we don't like. When someone does something we don't like and we don't know their reasoning for it, we tend to assume the worst reason rather than giving the benefit of the doubt. This is true because we're sinners. And this is true because one of those sins of being a sinner is being proud. And so it feels good to assume that people are less godly or have improper motives. Oh, he was late to church. I bet he slept in. There's no assuming that maybe something's wrong. Maybe he's fighting a cold and yet still wanted to worship with you, fellowship with you. It just assumes, oh, he's sleeping in. Oh, he's mad. Oh, he's not doing well. Nah, he says that, but I know he got fired because he's just a lazy worker. We just assume the worst all the time, always. Always. You ever been cut off on the freeway and thought, oh, I hope he's okay. He's probably, you know, really late or rushing to the hospital. No. You don't get past one word, which is jerk, right? We just assume the worst about everyone. And so that's why I added this. Assumptions, jumping to the conclusions can be very dangerous to the unity of the church. I think a lot of times we jump to conclusions because of past experiences, all right, we've been in a similar situation, and it was bad, and we get frustrated, and so we assume this is the same case today. Years ago, when I was living in Albania, I met a man who was visiting, and it's interesting when you live in as as an expat, you meet a lot of people who basically their whole lives or their whole adult lives they've lived in different countries, whether they working for various U.S. embassies or whatever. And this was one of these men. He has had lived in many different countries. And in one of those other countries, he had met another American who was now living in Albania Albania, and had married an Albanian, a friend of ours at church. And so this friend of a friend came to visit. And this guy was um, extremely socially awkward to the point that he was actually very needy and very rude and put people out without recognizing it. He really rubbed people the wrong way. And this apparently happened in churches everywhere that he went. So much so, in fact, that our Albanian friend that he came to visit cut all contact with him. And this guy who I barely known, knew the visitor, we had become friends on Facebook. He actually messaged me six years later I can't take it anymore. They won't respond to my calls, my emails. What's going on? And I'm not saying that was right of them to do. I'm just saying, giving you an idea of of how people perceived this individual. Well, as we said, we became friends on social media, and he was very confused about why people all over the world treated him the way they did. And so he actually would write me these long messages, both when I was in Albania and when I was here, planning a church, and he asked for my counsel, and so I would respond with counsel. He accepted it. He was thankful. All was good. And then radio silence for a few days, and I remember I think it was our first group of members in our church seven or eight years ago. So of course I was excited, and I posted a picture on my Facebook wall, and I just wrote the caption, as I do every time, new members receiving the right hand of fellowship. And not addressing any former message, not continuing our conversation, but addressing that picture, he messaged me. And he said this. The right hand of fellowship, huh? Know something? That kind of garbage talks smacks of total fundamentalism and judgment. Don't start with your judgments of my situation or person. It does not all caps work. It's conservative pastors such as you who make others Who struggle feel worthless. All because of a picture on my public wall with the phrase right hand of fellowship. I messaged him back. I apologize for the misunderstanding and explained that the phrase right hand of fellowship comes straight out of Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. It does not reflect anything that we believe or really how we treat people. There's no way you could determine that from a caption on a picture. Then he explained. It was in a church in Asia where he was working for the pastor for two years. Something had happened in the kitchen of the, of the church and he had knocked over someone's ramen and the soup got on someone and he believes it was because of that that they fired him. And the phrase that they used when they fired him after two years was, we are withdrawing the right hand of fellowship. It was a very difficult situation for him. And simply using a phrase that reminded him of a negative experience brought, bla- brought back a flood of emotions for him. And so he just assumed, I was exactly like that Korean pastor. The problem was he could not separate his emotions and his experience from the truth or even his ignorance of what the truth may be about me or our church. And so it was easy for him to assume and jump to conclusions about me and all of us. In the same way, we can come here we love the preaching. We love the fellowship. We praise God for the church, as so many people have said. So thankful to have found a solid church here. And then I do one thing, or I say one phrase, or the worship team leads us in a particular song, or we put out a certain type of sign outside. And all of a sudden, the baby is thrown out with the bathwater because one little thing triggers a past frustration. And this leads to the first one we looked at, anger. Ultimately, the problem with this is that when you do that, you make your experience dictate what's right or wrong. In other words, you become the authority rather than God. You know, this jumping to conclusions because of, or the frustrations because of personal experiences. This is how most liberal and damning theology is created and how it starts. Frustrated because of personal experience. It's not about what the word says. It's because those people who believe this did this to me when I came out of the closet or when I did whatever. In fact, frustration from personal experience is how a lot of, Racism begins, for that matter. And for the church, it makes you the determiner of truth rather than God. Would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8? For the men that I disciple, you know that I've probably made you memorize this verse. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Paul writes, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Not things that aren't true, like your assumptions. This, by the way, if you struggle with worry or anxiety, most of the things you're worried about are not true. What if, what if, what if? Go to this verse. Think about what is true, what is honorable, what is right, what is revealed in God's Word, what you know for a fact to be true. This guards us against assumptions. Because the very definition of an assumption, according to dictionary.com, is taking something for granted without proof. Believing something without proof. And so we go to this verse and we remember, no, that's not true. That's not right. I don't know. I don't have any proof of that. And even if you do and it's something bad, it's something gossipy, it's something negative, Philippians 4, eight still tells you don't dwell on those things because it's not honorable. It's not lovely. It's not of good repute. Think on the things of God. Think on the things that are worthy of your blood-bought intellect and time. And this segues us into the third indicator that you may be moving toward causing division, and that's just pride. Pride. If you're still in Philippians, turn back to chapter 2 and verses 3 through 7. As many of you know, uh, one of my, if not the favorite passage in Scripture of mine, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. It says, whenever you want, do some things, no, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. The moment you start putting yourself first, you need to pump the brakes. You need to stop. The moment it's all about you rather than others, rather than the good of the church, God's glory, the greater good, then you need to stop and rethink. When you hear yourself start thinking things like, I don't like this, this bothers me, you need to reevaluate. I'm not saying to ignore your spirit filled conscience, but be careful you are not being self seeking and self serving just to appease your own felt needs, appease your own frustrations and desires, understanding that your opinion, your input is helpful. It's how we grow as a church that everyone participates. But when you start thinking, my way or the highway, my opinion is more important than others. I told them what we should do. Why didn't we do it? Out of 100, 120 people, I said we should do this. We didn't do it. There must be something wrong. That kind of thinking shows that you may be more focused on yourself putting yourself in a position where you think your opinion matters more than others' opinions, perhaps more than God, perhaps wiser than the corporate leadership of the church, whatever it may be. Again, I'm not saying don't speak up, but make sure you are doing and thinking in a way that you are selfless rather than self-seeking. Well, we've seen three of the four aspects of Paul's appeal. The brotherhood, the basis, the basics. And now he gets more particular at what I'm calling the breadth of the appeal. The breadth of the appeal. The end of verse 10 he says, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. If we are to avoid divisions, what is it that we are to pursue? Paul says, completion, complete, be complete, united in the ESV and NIV, joined together in the King James. Literally, it means to put in order, to restore to a former or proper condition. And so with that definition, it's probably no surprise that uh, years ago, It was used as a surgical term for a broken bone, for setting a broken bone. It was once whole, it was once right, it broke, and you set it so that it can be proper again, complete. It was also used for fixing a ripped net for a fisherman, a broken tool, or fixing a ripped garment. It's basically taking something that is broken or separated and putting it back together again, thus making it one as it was supposed to be. And when you do that, it is once again complete. The implications for the church are clear. When there is disunity or disagreement, the church is not one. It is broken. So Paul says, do away with divisions and put the church back together the way it was meant to be, complete. One whole functioning body. This involves being one in beliefs, in spiritual standards and principles of spiritual living. Well, how do we do that? Paul says, by being of the same mind and of the same judgment. The mind would include your intellect, your frame or state of mind. It includes your ability to discern right from wrong, your outlook, your stance, your attitude. Judgment, then, is the application of the principles within the mind. It is your expressed opinion and condition. It's the outcome of what's in the mind. So we are to have the same opinion on essential matters of the faith as well as the application of the truth and how how that is lived out. If you really want to summarize it, you could say this. We are to be unified internally, which is the mind, and externally, which is judgment. You have to have both. We can't just say the same things while internally harboring disagreement. And this is very important. This unity, this uniformity is not to be forced. Okay? This is not, I was just, uh, I just watched this little clip of an expert on North Korea. Oh man, it's so much worse than you guys know of. In fact, he was going on to say Kim Jong-il and Un are not the people you should know of, right? That, that's uh, it, it's, There's, there's a, the guy who brought all the problems into the country that was, you know, was put in place by the communists. But it, it's so much bad, worse than we think. And I was explaining to my son this morning, I said, as a pastor, you don't want me to be like that dictator, right? Where you just force things, where people are forced to do things. And I even I even told him, I was explaining the, the punishments and the labor camps. I said, do you think that dictator ever does anything wrong? Yes. You think he punishes himself to the third generation as is required in North Korea? No. I said, well, I, I can't be like that. You'll get a chuckle at this. This this whole thing uh, was about them getting ready to church so that I'm on time as I ex- ask you guys to be on time. I said, I can't do that, right? I can't tell everyone to be on time and then I'm late. It's not like a dictatorship, right? And it goes back to how Paul started this verse. I'm coming alongside you. I am putting my arm around you. I'm exhorting you, brothers and sisters. Let there be no division among you. So this isn't a forced uniformity, but this is each individual voluntarily giving up their perceived rights for the good of the whole, And the glory of God. And even in that, we need to truly gauge our hearts. Because more often than not, we justify our anger, our disagreement, our dissension and division by saying, well, it's for, it's, it's for other people. It's for the good of the church. I want this to happen because I, you know, it'll help the church. When really, you just, you just want it. It would help you. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful. And so this morning we've looked at the first of five components of division in the church, which is the appeal. And I broke this first point into four sub points, the brotherhood of the appeal. We need unity because we are family. The basis of the appeal, the name of Jesus Christ, which means everything that he is and what he desires us to be. The basics of the appeal agree and have no divisions. And finally, the breadth of the appeal be made whole or complete by being of the same mind and judgment. And I want to remind you as I close of something that I started with division is very dangerous, especially within the church. It's dangerous to us as a local body, but it also affects the ability of the church and its members individually to properly glorify God. You guys have been through this, many of you, through a church split, through a division, and you know that it affects your personal walk with God because participation and worshiping with a local body is, in God's design, a significant part of how we worship God on a daily, not just Sunday's, basis. And so when that's all messed up, it affects you. And so division is so dangerous. It's not just about us individually, it is about us corporately. And if you have a beef with just one other person in this church if you think that private conversation, that private disagreement that no one else knows about besides you two and the Lord, if you think that doesn't affect all of us, then you need to restudy the New Testament and what it teaches about the church and the body of Christ. Because if you're not doing well spiritually, your attitude and your fellowship will be affected when you interact with us, and it will affect other people. And then you just see the snowball. People, are tempted. people are, are tempted to gossip. People are tempted to wonder. People are tempted to not meditate on what is true, right, lovely, pure, all those things. It's all part of our focus on the Lord. And again, this is to be voluntary. This is to be because we desire as individuals. And that's what it is. First and foremost, although we are together, we are to encourage one another, we are to confront one another, we are to spur one another on to love and good deeds. Ultimately, your relationship with God is individual, one-on-one with God, and personal. The church is here to help. This is why in the New Testament, Paul compares, or one of the reasons, Paul compares the Christian life not to a team sport, but a marathon race. It is your race. But yes, in a marathon, there are people that run beside you, cheer you on, hand you water, help train you. But ultimately, it is your race. When you cross that finish line, they tell you your time, not a team, your time. And so it has to start there with your humility, your love for the Lord, your love for the Lord's people, and your own walk with God. And then together we will run the race. You know, it's true of when you talk to, to, you know, youth groups or college ministries. You know, a common thing is that when you get to judgment day, when you die and go to heaven, you cannot tell God, well, it's because my parents, well, I never went to church because my parents, or can I get in because my parents are? But the same principle applies to the church. Yeah, but I went to a good church. Yeah, but the the, the preacher preached doesn't work that way. And so it starts with you and then it flows out. Your relationship with God then flows out to a godly marriage, godly parenting, and then also the church. We are the body of Christ. There's no way. You would accept it. You've seen the YouTube clips of people who have this, but you wouldn't voluntarily get rid of a finger, get rid of a hand, get rid of a leg. You wouldn't voluntarily, for no reason, become handicapped so that your body life, your body, is no longer functioning 100% as it once was. And so that picture of the body of Christ is so appropriate. And I need you all to understand, even if you are just visiting this morning and don't intend to ever come back, you need to understand that the body of Christ is a picture that indicates that if even one finger is not healthy, if one limb, one toe is messed up, that affects the whole just as it does for you when you jam your finger or you stub a toe or need surgery on just one joint. It affects the whole. And when you take this into the idea of the local church and the unity we are to have, I need you to understand how important it is that there is no division among us, but that differences of opinion and disagreements exist but are dealt with in a biblical and God-honoring way. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know that we have a tendency to believe we have these rights that we can enforce upon other people. We want our way. We are... By your design, you have given us the blessing of being emotional people. But help us to keep those emotions in check and may truth, your truth, the only truth, be what guides us in this life and guides us in how we live out our church life and our spirituality. I pray that if there's any grudges, if there's any sinful disagreements or biblical disagreements, but are fleshed out in an unbiblical way, I pray that you would help us to deal with those on an individual level, that we would seek your glory and the edification of your saints first and foremost before our felt needs, before our sinful desires. Help us to pursue, to think on things that are right, to guard us from anger, guard us from assumptions, guard us from always assuming the worst. I pray that we would be fully functioning not just For our happiness, but for your glory, Lord, and that we would be a burning, bright light to the Bay Area. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.